Jerry, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Yeah, thank you. You have an exciting path. You started off as an electrical engineer and you started tasting different industries before you end up in gaming. What, what, what was that process like? Oh my gosh, my uh, background is even more crazy than that. You know, I've been a lifelong inventor and kind of hacker, uh, in, hacker in the good terms, right? Um, since I was a young kid, I uh, got started on early home computers. I had a lot of mentors when I was just a, a kid or a teenager that taught me electronics and radios. Um, my father owned a mechanic uh, business where um, as soon as I was old enough to turn a wrench, he got me going to his gas station and changing oil in cars and lapping valves and cylinder heads and just doing it all. A very fun uh, childhood, being able to do a lot of making and building and inventing. Um, kind of a, I think the most interesting piece of my past is my first career, I was a race car driver and a chassis builder. So I actually built these big wow. V8 powered cars raced them. And then eventually I got uh, such a good reputation of building good cars that um, I started selling the cars. And it ultimately dropped out of high school because I was making so much money building and racing cars that it Love just that. It didn't make sense for me to hang out in high school when I could go after this other opportunity. Already figured out the thing. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah. <great. laughs> And then after that, that was a really interesting uh, time in my life. It was exciting, but you know, people around racetracks are, they're not, uh, you know, the classiest of people. I was like dealing with a lot of knuckleheads and stuff like that. It was pretty frustrating for me being kind of in that industry. Um, one day I was hanging out with one of my um, former high school friends. We were probably in our mid twenties at this point. And uh, uh, he had made a little man cave in his garage and he had a 486 computer in there. And I was admiring Ooh. his yeah. state of the art uh, computer running Windows 311. And uh, that's like, a floppy wow, disk days, right? He, I, he had like a hard drive. 4, 4, oh, you had a hard Okay. Yeah, had a hard drive. Hard. It was nice. pretty amazing. And uh, we got talking. He's like, Yeah, guess what? I. I convinced this wholesaler that I was a real business and they sold me all these parts for wholesale. And like this computer would cost me like $1,500, but I actually bought it for like six or $700. And my entrepreneurial side at that point is like, ding. Oh my gosh, that's some great margin. You know, working on something I love working on. I was like that, that one kind of hangout session. I was like, Oh, let's start a business. That's so cool. Yeah, I ended up um, selling off all my race car stuff, um, which frustrated my father, who was constantly convinced that I was going down the wrong path. And then, you know, various points in my life, like the race cars, he's like, you know, I was such a bad teenager. And then all of a sudden I just started doing race cars and then, oh, she's on a, a good course now. And then I like throw it all away and I start this other risky business. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? Um, but I sold everything. I put all my money into... Uh, the, starting a computer store. And uh, this is kind of a really interesting point in my life where I was still, I was kind of like this gothy kid in high school with a chip on my shoulder, you know, kind of got there because everyone was, didn't understand me and I was just angry at the world. And that kind of carried into my racing. I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Then we start this business and I now have to work with uh, my friend and we were just Im immediately at each other's throats. 
like just fighting all the time. And now that I look back, you know, at the time I was like, it's all his fault why we're fighting all the time. But in fact, it was probably a lot my fault because I was super edgy back then doing the goth thing and dressing (laughs) in black and overdoing my makeup and stuff like that. Um, But he ended up booting me out of the business, which was uh, heartbreaking. Like I loved the business so much. It had taken off. We were doing quite well um, financially. And then I get booted out and I was so young. I didn't know how to fight back. And I found myself kind of like crying in my apartment and calling people up like my dad, like, oh, what do I do? And of course, his advice was, you should just go back to school, you know, get a degree, you know, get your life in line. I told you what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I told you this was going to happen. You know, all the things that parents say to try to protect you, nothing like terribly mean, but probably the bitter pill I should have been hearing at the time. Um, But then I got mad. I'm like, F this guy, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put him out of business. And so I'd, lost all my money basically i'd put all every penny i had into this business to bootstrap it and i didn't have hardly anything to my name at the point at that point so i took i scraped together as much money as i could actually um, broke the lease on my apartment i found a uh, a little a little uh it was a barber shop just down the road like a mile away from his shop and I rented it. It was super cheap. It was junky. I, I took the barber chair out and I just threw it out in the, the back alley and it disappeared one day. Wow. <laughs> Someone picked it up. And I scraped together enough like money to get some fixtures so I could put some product on the wall, but I didn't have any money for product. So what do you do? Like I uh, went to his dumpster and I took all the colorful boxes from all the computer components that he had. And I stuck it all over the wall to make it look like the store was uh, legit. That's awesome. You just getting it done. Getting it done. You know, that's, you know, in business, you have to like see where you can flex things. Um, Also like during that time I was living in the back of the store, you know, starving to death all the time. Um, I learned probably most of my, valuable lessons during that period in my life. Um, So I didn't have money for like garbage service. So I was like running around throwing the trash in the uh, from our business and everybody else's garbage. And, you know, one day, you know, the police showed up, I'm working with a customer and they're like, you know, is this your business? I'm like, yeah. And they're like threatening me that they're going to cite, you know, give me a ticket or throw me in jail or something. You know, very embarrassing to have that happen in front of your clientele. Um, so I kind of learned some lessons. It's like, you know, you can bend the rules a little bit, but you got to be ethical too, right? Sure. Um, the other thing about it is like, I was just out for revenge. So I would never be undersold. So I like, if someone came in and said like, my ex-business partner had something for like $10, I'll, I said like, well, I'll do you one better. I'll do it for nine. So I was like, constantly wheeling and dealing but it during this like phase it was like rob peter to pay paul constantly because people would come in like you know i want this floppy drive for nine dollars but i didn't have any all i had was a box on the wall that was empty so i don't know how ethical it is i probably wouldn't do this today but i would say like well that one's committed um but if you give me the money now i'll go get you you know a 
you know, went in like three days and I'd scramble to order all the parts and started to bootstrap the business that way to where I got some money and could hold some inventory. But I think the biggest lesson was across the street from me. Throughout my whole life, mentors have been so instrumental in helping me get to where I am today. Um, but, you know, a business mentor entered my life. He was an insurance salesman across the street. He was successful. He looked the part. He was nice. He'd come over. He was into computers. So he'd come over at lunch and he'd give me, you know, a cup of noodle or, or bring me a hamburger or something because he knew I was starving to death. And he started um, giving me some of the uh, uh, kind of difficult truths that I needed to hear in a gentle way. Things like relatability. Like I was still dressing kind of gothy. I had this like you know, edge to me. He'd say things like, you know, I, I noticed that you were swearing in front of your customers. It's probably not a, a good way to be relatable. Another thing is, you know, you should probably look the part of like a responsible business owner. So, you know, I know you like to dress this way, but maybe during business hours, you should, you know, kind of look the part. And Helpful hints. Yeah. It was hard for me to hear those things. It sounds weird to me today that it was difficult for me to actually hear those kinds of things. But, you know, I was kind of living this life. Like I had my circle of friends that were all edgy and then I'm trying to like become more of a professional business person. And it was interesting uh, this transition in my life. I started becoming, doing things to be more relatable with customers and I, the business started to grow. And then I started realizing that like all of these like angsty things that I were, was doing was not because I loved it. It was like a defense mechanism that I was using like in my high school years to protect myself against the jocks or the mean kids. So and you were I, gaining some self-awareness at the same time you're gaining business skills. Yeah. That's great. I'm sorry if this is long-winded. No, um, absolutely not. Keep going. Um, but anyway, the business took off. I ended up having five stores. I had, you know, employees. I learned how to hire and fire and how to find the right people, how to market, how to like make your store presentable. It was like a great time in my life. It was also a really hot time for retail computer stores. It was 1995 through 2000 when everyone was getting on AOL and getting online. And it was like this gold rush. Um, and it was very much a family feeling with all the personnel, which I, every business that I've done ever since, I've always tried to replicate that. It was just magical. We were all passionate about what we were doing. For instance, there was this one, um, gentleman that worked for me. He was about my age, long hair to the middle, middle of his back, you know, kind of typical nerd guy, maybe, you know, not put together as, as well as everybody else presenting himself to it like a customer. So I kind of kept him in the back and he worked on computers. He was super happy doing that for a long time. And, you know, sometimes I'd come in on a Sunday and he'd be in there working and I'd be like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? Like, I can't pay you overtime to be you know, working on customers' computers. He's like, no, I just love it. I just want to be here. Wow. But, you know, what was really heartwarming one day is he like showed up, he had trimmed all his hair off and cleaned up his beard and he had a button up shirt. And he's like, I don't want to be stuck in the back. I want to be out in front with the customers. And nice. that was a really amazing like uh, moment for me to see that transformation. Oh, sure. Was, you get to watch your team grow. That's really cool. So it's like somehow through this mentor, like it trickled through me and maybe influenced him a little bit. And then it just, it's really neat. 
um, yeah, we were in like hog heaven back then, lots of money. Um, and then all of a sudden year 2000 came, there was a big spike because everyone was worried their computer was gonna implode on uh, day one of the new millennia. And uh, turns out nothing exploded. And then all of a sudden the computer market like retracted big time. Mm. And uh, at the same time, uh, big players like Gateway Computers, E-Machines, Dell, all came out with like, instead of $1,500 computers, they had like $300 computers and $400 computers. And it just sucked all the wind out of uh, my business. And that was a, another interesting transition for, for the team. So I probably employed 15 people or so and had some managers in the various stores. And we all got together as a team and I was very transparent. Like we're hemorrhaging money like crazy. We've got six months to live, right? We got to do something. So everyone pitched in, started, we tried everything. We did network installs. We did cell phones. We did satellite dishes, trying to find a new way to kind of keep the party going with the, the family. And uh, it was partly heartbreaking and also heartwarming as things transitioned. Things got worse. Pretty soon it's starting to look dire. I'm not gonna be able to make payroll. So we had to have the hard group decisions like who's gonna be voted off the island? Who has other opportunities? Who wants to stick it out and try to turn this sinking ship around? And, you know, lots of tears, you know, through the months as the, the company like dwindled, we, we tried a lot of things. And uh, eventually it got to a point where like, I just can't do this anymore. and. So I offered up the businesses to all the managers of the stores. Like, if you want to keep going, I'll give you the inventory with the um, understanding that if someday you turn things around, you'll just pay me for the inventory, but you know, you can give it a go. And it turns out we shut down two of the stores immediately because there just wasn't enough um, traction to keep them going. Three, three folks took them on and uh, tried to make a go of it. And some of them survived for a while. One of them survives today which is amazing in Canby, Oregon, there's still, somehow they did it. Uh, Good on them. Yeah, yeah. Never got my inventory back from, but that's okay. Like it's forgiven. If you see this, <laughs> keep it. Like, you know, kudos to you for going through that bloodbath and coming out on the top. Um, but that was, that was super interesting. It, it taught me how to work really, really hard um, that whole like five, six year period of my life. Um, so again, I'm in kind of crying in my beer, calling my friends, like, what do I do? My business has failed. And of course, call my father. And he says, all right, this, you know, you gave it a good run. Yeah, go back to school, get your degree. <laughs> and of course, what do I do? I mean, this this whole time, because I had money, I started like buying electronics equipment and started learning like pretty hardcore electronics just as a hobby. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go to Silicon Valley and brute force my way into uh, startups and start doing products and do electrical engineering. It's something I'd always dreamed about doing. And so I took my little bit of savings and hunkered down, I actually took a part-time job at a uh, electronics parts store, like retail store, like a giant radio shack. And for like minimum wage, it was so ridiculous just to kind of keep topping off my bank account. And I made this uh, arrangement with the manager of the store that, you know, I'll work three days a week, but I need this extra time to like travel to Silicon Valley. I was living in Portland at the time, Portland area. 
And he was like, yeah, sure, that's great. And uh, so I started going to Silicon Valley and going to all these different trade shows and shaking everybody's hands. And I had this little duffel bag I'd carry with me that had all these little circuit boards that I built that did different things. Like one of them was like a sound generator and one of them drove an LCD screen. And one of them was like a reconfigurable processor in an FPGA. And I was just meeting lots of entrepreneurs and folks from different companies and getting lots of interviews in startups. And so I'm flying you know, airfare back and forth to Silicon Valley, taking these interviews and it's draining my bank account fast and I'm getting lots of no's. Most of the time it would be like, I would get into like one or two of the interviews and they would just, they'd always ask me things like, oh, it's really interesting that you've done traction control systems for race cars or built all these little circuit boards and things, but where'd you go to school? <laughs> oh, that, that old question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I dropped out of high school, in fact. And you know, usually they just kind of cut. The- We're starting to see that shift now, which is is nice. People want someone who can do the work, not necessarily has a piece of paper that has increasingly become useless. Yeah, and, and I just ran myself completely broke. Um, kind of a funny side story with this electronics store. Uh, since I had so many years of retail sales and and I really knew how to upsell people like in the computer store, I had just gotten really good at selling things. And so I was working this minimum wage job where most of the people there just didn't give a, a hoot about doing their job, but it was just like, it was in my DNA. You know, I'd run around the store, I'd face all the shelves, make them look pretty. And, you know, a customer would come in and they'd have like some electronics project and they'd bring it up and I'd be like, oh, what are you working on? Oh, you know, you, do you have a nine volt battery um, terminal for that? You, maybe you should get one so you can like make it a complete, like, you know, standalone thing. And they're like, oh, that's a great idea. And I'd upsell them all this. And so the manager loved me. Like I went straight to the top in sales. They had like this like competition who could sell the mo- most. And I was just like crushing everyone. And so like, I'm, I'm taking all this time off to go to Silicon Valley. He's pressuring me, like doing the hard press. Like you got to spend more time at the the store. And I'm like, Oh, sure. No. Yeah. You're benefiting <laughs> nope. him so much. Of course. It eventually got so contentious. And even though I really need the money, I was just like, I quit. Like, you know, I'm not going to be pressured into uh, working a minimum wage job. It's, it's an unfortunate way to treat your best person. Yeah. Well, we worked it through. We're still buds. Uh, we see oh, each other cool. every few years, but you know, it's nice. just, we're all, he was young. I was young, but so now I'm like running out of money and I can't take airplane rides down to Silicon Valley. I'm taking the Greyhound bus, which is like, it's one of these things you get on the bus at like seven o'clock at night the day before and you ride all night stopping every podunk town between Portland and Silicon Valley. So I'm coming down to go to these different trade shows. I couldn't afford to get into them. So here's some of my questionable, questionable ethics, I guess. I, I just learned like how to like coattail into these things and just like march right into the trade shows and stuff as if I belonged there or make fake badges and stuff to get in because I couldn't afford the hundreds of dollars to actually go. Um, but I got a break. I met this one entrepreneur. Uh, we hit it off. He's like, you're, you're just like the perfect you know, balance of go-getter that we're looking for. Come in and interview. So this is at a trade show. Come interview next week. And my heart sunk when he said that because it was like, oh no, like I have to take a Greyhound bus back 
um, and then a week later come back on a Greyhound bus to do an interview where they're going to tell me no after one or two interviews. <laughs> and so the situation was, it was exactly that. I started the interview, a couple interviews in, they cut, cut me loose and I'm walking out of the building, walking down the stairs and I run into the founder of the company. He's like, hey, where are you going? And it's like, like, yeah, they cut me free. And they're like, what, have you talked to so-and-so? And have you talked to so-and-so? I'm like, no, I only talked to like the first person or two. He's like, come with me. And so he took me upstairs and he gathered his whole team and he did a panel interview and it was so fun. It was the first time I've ever done a panel interview. He's like firing off questions and I'm answering them. And he just pretty much unilaterally like we're doing this with you. And so I took it extremely seriously. Like it was a pretty big challenge he, he had um, tasked me with. And so I worked day and night and did a really good job for him. And it, the design worked. I did a couple designs for him. And that was my stepping stone. And from that, it opened a bunch of doors. And I started to grow this reputation through the early 2000s. It's like the person you hire that can solve a tough problem, get it done and assemble teams as well. So I started to attract a group of engineers that would go along with me. So we would just kind of parachute into a company, solve a tough problem. Nice. And then and move on. Um, That's a cool yeah. business model. Yeah. And so I did contract work like that, you know, mostly contract for like a decade and a half. And it was awesome. I did all kinds of things. I had a lot of opportunities that kind of put me on the map. Like one of them, it's so funny. People remember me because of this toy that I designed and it's, it's a pretty interesting story in itself. So this toy company found me online. I had been like posting a blog or something about some of my um, reverse engineering of retro computers. So I had had a Commodore 64 when I was like eight or nine years old and I kind of liked it. And it was like a good platform for me to sharpen my skills. So in my spare time, I would take, there was chips in it, you know, that did different things like video and sound and keyboard interfaces. And I'd reverse engineer those and put those into this thing called an FPGA. It's like a reprogrammable chip. And I was just documenting that. And I was going to some like enthusiast groups around old retro computers and showing this stuff off. And this toy company contacted me like, and they're like, we've been trying to build an all-in-one joystick that has the Commodore 64 games that everyone loved in the eighties um, to sell for like $19. And we, we've been failing because there's no processor that can emulate the uh, Commodore 64. And we see that you can do chips. So can you make a chip that does the entire Commodore 64? And I'd never done a chip before. Like it's a big task to do a chip. I didn't even know how big of a task it was at the time. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. And so like, can you get it done in like eight months or something? It was like less than a year. I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So nice. um, we assembled this little team. It was like three software folks. Some of them were already on the project when I joined and I did the entire like chip design. So I emulated the whole computer, um, found a company that could make the chip for me. And then I had to eat a bunch of humble pie when I went to the chip company and said like, well, here's the real story about what's going on. I've got this thing kind of running in this emulator chip over here, but I know nothing about actually turning it into silicon. Like, you know, can you help me do this? I'm in, in a really tough situation because now I burned like six months of my eight month budget to um, design this, make the design. They were very generous. I found some mentors in there. They took me through the process. 
um, th at this point, we're so late and this was going to be a Christmas gift. So it's like July and we need to be manufacturing. So there's this thing in the semiconductor in industry called a hot lot or a super hot lot where you just push a design through without testing it like fully. And so we had no choice. So we pushed hundreds of thousands of these chips through the foundry and made them and sent them to China to be assembled into these joysticks. And so I'm taking a bit of a break, um, resting after like such a long slog to design this thing. And I get this super angry phone call from this angry New Yorker. So the toy executives are these New Yorker guys and they are swearing and yelling and apparently the chip didn't work. And mm. this, is, this represents, this is millions of dollars worth of chips that they'd produced you know, and put all this faith in me and no pressure. You know, yeah. No pressure at all. So I'm thinking to myself, am I going to have to run to Mexico? So I don't get like knocked off by uh, some mob boss or some <laughs> New game York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm freaked out. They're yelling at me, like, you know, get your papers in line. You're getting on a plane as, as soon as you can, like one or two days, you're going to China. I've never been to China and you're going to fix this problem. Oh my God. Like, tell me what's going on. They're like, it's dead. That's all I knew is it's dead. So a couple of days later, I get on a plane, go to China, get to the factory, which is a whole new experience for me. And, and they bring out this toy and we take the screws out of the bottom and I take a look at it. And the circuit board is not the circuit board I provided to them. They had decided to cost reduce it on their own. So they'd taken a, a bunch of the components. The out. manufacturer did that? Yeah, yeah. It was too expensive. Oh, okay. So they just replaced it with other things. Wow. Okay. And so, you know, in electronics, the first thing you do for testing things, you put your finger on different parts of the circuit and that introduces noise and capacitance. And I just like, that's the first thing I started to do is like poking it with my finger and all of a sudden it boots up and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> they're not going to like chop me up and throw me in a well or something if I right. can. So we made some changes. We got it working. Um, also, at the same time on this, uh, I, I learned some valuable lessons about virality, right? This is, I had no clue about viral marketing at the time, but this whole crew that we put together just loved this old 8-bit computer. And so we were adding extra things to the design. So the software guys were adding secret games. Um, I was adding the ability for you to open the product up, hook keyboards and disk drives up to it so you could load your own games into it. And there were a couple questionable things like we had pictures of um, us, the, the developers of the product drinking beer with like famous programmers um, like embedded. An, was it like an Easter egg? Easter eggs and stuff nice. like that. Nice. And the person I was dating at the time, uh, well, okay. So I was same time as at the factory, we got it working, some of the, um, personnel were there and I was kind of playing around with the joystick and I dropped into the secret mode and they saw it and they're like, what is that? That's not a game that we put in there. And I was like, oh yeah, we added some extras. They were furious. Again, I'm in the, now in the doghouse again, because we had potentially added things to this product that could uh, prevent it from having like, um, I can't remember what the rating is for kids, but the, a kid's rating. So like, oops. And they're like, you are, you know, basically you're done with us. We're never doing anything with you again. You're a horrible person. You know, don't tell anyone about this. And so I'm like, oh, well, 
I burned that bridge. And so the person I was dating at the time, they're like, what do you want to do about this? Do you want this like Easter egg to never go known? Or do you just, just want to just like tell people about it? And I was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just tell people about it. And so he made a fake blog that was backdated and looked really legit. Like it was a factory worker that had been building the product. And, but he was kind of like a hardware tinkerer. So he had all kinds of hacked hacky projects in previous blog posts. And then it ends with, you know, my product that I designed. And, uh, and he was really good at getting things on uh, like Slashdot at the time, which was a pretty big um, site for news. And so two or three days before the product launched and it was launching on QVC, which is a home shopping network. It's a ridiculous place to launch like a Back product. in the TV like shopping a, days, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was like they're, all of their marketing, like they pay actors to go on there to market this thing, um, uh, to, to talk about the features. And so like their marketing material was just making my skin crawl. It was like, had nothing to do about the Commodore 64 and the, the video games you love. It was more targeted to grandma and grandpa watching the home shopping network. And it was like things like your grandkids will love this. Get two of them. You could have one at your home and let them take one home. And it's like, Move it has so many colors. And like, yeah. but anyway, um, we got this thing on Slashdot. It like goes straight to the top. People are like, holy cow, we've never seen a product that you could take apart. And it's like all of these people that love this old computer, like swarmed QVC day one. They sold out um, in like the first week. And then uh, I get this call from the toy guys and they're like, what is going on? I'm like, well, I know you didn't want me to say anything about it, but it got out anyway, right? I don't know how it did, but it got out. <laughs> and they're like, we sold out, like it's incredible. And QVC has been calling us up, wanting to know why 50% of the sales are going overseas. They don't even broadcast in some of these regions and they didn't, they didn't broadcast this product in those regions. And so that was pretty freaking amazing. And it put me kind of on the map as far as like um, making cool products, even though I'd made a bunch of products up to that point. And so, so I, I did- this is pre- Right, Slashdot was was the news, but it's you're trying to sell through the TV. We hadn't gotten to the point of understanding social media marketing and and pushing out uh, e-commerce. So this is that hybrid time, right? I mean, it's pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter. I'm pretty yeah. sure, or if they were even around, they were so nascent that they were irrelevant at the point. At that and, point, and that's a really cool indicator being earlier on in in the World Wide Web. Let's say. Um, where you were able to, as you said, go viral. Yeah, and it was unexpected. And guess what? The toy guys loved me at that point. Sure, they you just made me. all they their came, money back in plus, plus, plus. <laughs> plus, they, they sold like close to a million of those. Um, and they would have sold more if there wasn't some other, there was, wasn't part of anything I had dealings with, but there was some kind of dispute over licensing or something. But it would have just continued to sell like very... Uh, like hotcakes. Uh, I went back and did five, five toys or so with those guys. I worked with a bunch of other toy companies. Um, pretty amazing. I've made toys that have probably shipped upwards of like 10 million units is pretty cool. That is cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's some of the toys I've done that have shipped in really high volumes are kind of, I, I won't, I, I won't say it. I don't want to slag on uh, previous clients, yeah, but some no, of them no, were no, like sure. things I, I didn't really agree with as far as like 
their educational value. Um, Nebulous benefits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry so, this is so long-winded. Like, no, are we I doing mean, good? This, yeah, we're doing good. This is this is the story. So you you do the video game hardware, you make you make some additional stuff. What what's next steps? Uh, from that, that was an amazing springboard. I got to work on some really cool stuff. I worked on an IC that ended up in things like the TiVo set-top box, the video recorder. That What's an IC? Integrated circuit. So a integrated chip. circuit. Okay. A chip yeah. For the TiVo. Yeah. It ended up in, you know, some of the models of TiVo and it's like, you know, but it was never as satisfying. That was never as satisfying as say the, um, the toys. Like I could go to the store and point and like that empty spot is like this, that toy is selling out. And that's the thing that I made. That's amazing. Right. But a chip inside of a, some other device, like I didn't get the same kudos out of it, but I was, but I did a bunch of different things like that. Is that, is uh, that how you came or why you ended up going back to gaming now? Was it sort of that, is it fair to call it instant gratification of being able to see movement? What's amazing about toys and what I can do in the gaming space is you can go from customer experience. And actually this is, let me go back to the toys. This is one of this guy that yelled at me like viciously and mm. like, you're never working with us again. Also became one of my best mentors. I talked to him multiple times a year now. Um, so in the toy industry, you get to pitch ideas. And if you pitch the ideas, sometimes you get a royalty on the, 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 the design that you built. And it's kind of a lucrative thing to get a chance to pitch your product. And so um, I was very excited the first time I got to pitch to all the toy executives. So I made the nerds, the nerds nerd toy. You know, I won't even go into the features, but it had every bell and whistle. It was so high tech. It was amazing. My, I just glowed when I look at, looked at it. So I go and I, I, I do the pitch meeting and he, they cut me off super early. I think there were swear words involved talking about wasting their time. And they pulled Is me aside. Is this one company or a bunch of executives at different companies? One company. One, one company. company, okay. Um, I've worked at multiple toy companies, but it was this particular one that I kept gravitating back to. And I really wanted to have like a, a toy that I could get some back-end royalties on. And so I was constantly wanting to be part of this. But it was a super valuable lesson for me. Like they pulled me aside afterwards and like, sorry, we were so harsh with you, but you know, whatever, we're stressed. But the reality is you need to have customer focus. You know, you are not the audience Next year, when you come back and pitch, you know, before you even start the design, I want you to go get a box of Legos or Lincoln Logs or something like find a target audience you want to go after that's a kid that we're going to sell to and um, sit cross-legged on the floor, play with Legos, just pretend that you're 12 again. Are you a girl? Are you a boy? Like figure out what the mindset is, you know, think about double buy-in, like all right, what's the key feature that you're going to put in this that's going to make them nag their parents to actually pay the money to, to buy it? Super valuable hearing these things. And so I've, after that time working on toys, I've hungered for products where I can have a big impact on the end consumer. I can figure out who the end user is and I can target them and I can develop the product just to funnel right up to like that moment of delight with the end user. So, so is it, 
you do you do that through that sort of immersive experiential process where you're engaging with what that target audience would engage with? Is it market research? Where's how or what how what is your form of market research to get in that headspace? You know, I'm not perfect at it. No one is. Um, I try to just do mental exercises um, myself because I don't I don't put a lot of weight into market research. You know, those things are often crafted to like send create a message that wants they whoever's making them the research they want it to be heard and uh, so I try to do it create my own mental model and then I test it and um, for instance the current product I'm working on is AR glasses that you know you put on you flip open a game board and this magical world springs out in front of you and you can directly interact with all these holograms with you and your friends Right, that's kind of the current product I'm working on. And so here's a story, just to fast forward a little bit, I'll come back, but um, I had this theory that holograms and would play really well with a game called Warhammer. So Warhammer, I've never played it, I think it's interesting, but Warhammer is a bunch of people get together and they paint up a bunch of miniatures and figurines and they make these uh, mock battles on a big giant table and it gets very elaborate and they move the pieces around and they measure distances that arrows or bullets can be fired and um, it's a very immersive storytelling. So my thought was, oh, this is going to be the perfect device for them. I could replace all those miniatures. We can have bullets flying. We can have smoke shooting out, castles burning. It'll just be amazing. And so that was my mental model. Then I decided to go to a couple events that where they were actually playing this and they're amazing. Like they're done in like school gymnasiums and uh, big uh, arenas and stuff where there's hundreds of tables set up with thousands and thousands of people doing these, um, uh, this role playing. So I go in there, I start talking to people and like, hey, I'm making this product. It could just replace all your miniatures and you'll never have to have them again. And you know, I just had this wrong mental model. They almost ran me out with pitchforks and torches. Cause they and like so, the collectible. Exactly. It's about the miniatures. So I went, I left with my tail between my legs and I started thinking about, okay, well, I was really off base on that. So the next event I'm going to go to, I'm going to go with a different model, mental model of like how this is going to work. And so I went back and I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I think I understand this. Tell me a bit about it. What if, you know, instead of that little piece of cotton that you've painted red that represents fire what if i could really be just fire like holographic fire sitting on top of your you know miniature or something you know what if you could track you know how much damage like kind of like a little ring or something around your miniature that shows like the health of that particular character so adding or, the value of augmented reality to their tabletop game yeah, re replacing nothing, just maybe basically additive. And they're like, it to oh. life, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. like that's that would be perfect. Like having having to measure how far like an arrow flies is like kind of sucks. Why don't we just draw a big circle that you know if anything falls within that circle, you can potentially hit your target. And they're like, oh, that'd be great. So that that's kind of like the creative process. It's different for everything that you're going after, right? If you're going after a kid, you may have to talk to parents and try to figure out like, you know, what interests their kids. And it's a little harder sometimes when you're further away from the target audience. 
how how is this process coming along right now? Where are you at with with building out the product? It's a never ending process, right? So working in the space of augmented reality, like this is going to fundamentally change the way that people interact um, with computers, interact with um, each other, um, how they play games. And so it's such a wide open space. Um, it's never ending. You know, you can name any industry, any kind of entertainment, any kind of anything. And there's probably some application that could improve, be improved with augmented reality. And so it's going through these different mental models, like which ones have the biggest value to go after today. Let me back up. I'll, I'll finish. I'll try to move along faster. I know I'm burning up all your time, but I'll try to get through great. like how I got to augmented reality, because I think it's an interesting story and it kind of leads up to why I've got the bug and why I think it's so transformative. I started a YouTube channel um, just in the early 2000s because I felt that I needed to give back to mentors. And so I do all this hardcore science that you can do in your garage. It's kind of a fun project I do. I, you can make, I showed how you can make transistors and chips in your microchips in your garage in a very simplistic way or- People love that you, stuff. Oh yeah. And I became quite popular on YouTube with that. And a company called Valve Software, their big video game company in oh, yeah. Seattle, they also <laughs> just a, have just a, a little, little, little company, <laughs> little company worth billions and billions of dollars. You're going to love this story. So Valve Software has a content distribution platform called Steam. If you play games on PC, you probably buy your games through their content distribution platform at their store. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so I'm working on a project um, for a chip company. It wasn't super thrilling, but, you know, it was kind of, I was in a good mental space with it at the time and pretty happy. And I collect pinball machines. So I have a ton of pinball machines. And one day I'm at a pinball conference and these people walk up to me and they're like, hey, you're Jerry, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, hey, we're from Valve Software. We wanna to talk to you about coming to work for us. And I'm like, well, I do hardware. I really don't do you know, software companies. And they're like, well, we wanna get into hardware. And I'm like, that's red flag for me. Like companies that don't know hardware that want to get into it, it's like, stay away, right? Because well, hardware is a different beast. Got it. So it's it's the challenge of of bringing them up to speed. What what's the the friction there? It's a different design process, and a lot of times companies that are software companies struggle with like the the different lead times of doing things like software. You can have a really buggy piece of software, kick it out the door and then just update it and fix it you know, on the consumer's computer or phone. Hardware, it, the stakes are much higher. Like you start six months or a year in advance to like ship this particular product. You got to get it right. Like there's no- No day one patch. Yeah, I mean, there's some things you can do, but you get a transistor wrong or something and you discover it after you've shipped a half million units, it's like, nothing you can do right and problems yeah expensive problems millions of dollars software bug oh well, it costs zero dollars to uh, to just patch it so um yeah that's i was kind of turned off and they were trying to you know convince me i should come talk to them but i just disregarded them and then so i'm i'm getting messages like on social media from them like hey we want to talk to you 
And I'm like, I don't think it's for me. I'm busy right now. Like I'm, pl I'm polite. I'm not being super rude about it. It just didn't appeal the way they were presenting it to me. Um, I uh, was at Maker Fair. They showed up there some different people like, hey, you're Jerry, you need to come work with us. And like, it's starting to get flattering at this point. So I'm like, hmm. And finally I get this message from Gabe Newell, the founder of the company. He's like, I'm gonna fly down and talk to you. And I'm like, okay, I'll have lunch with you. So I was living in Portland at the time and he flew down, went to have lunch with him. And, you know, he didn't say it this way but basically he's like, we're a big deal, right? We love you, we're big fans just give me like an afternoon. Can you fly up next week for an afternoon? It's not an interview. We just want to show you around. Biggest lie ever. I get there. Uh, they stick me in a conference room and here's, and again, it was super delightful though. It was a panel interview. So it's a room of like 10 people. They knew they couldn't keep me there for very long. So they're like, uh, if we wanted to make a joystick, how would you do it? And I'd be like, well, I'd go to this manufacturer. I'd probably like hire an industrial designer and we'd have to do this testing. And yeah, we wanna do this or that. And it was super fun. And uh, partway through it, I'm sure Gabe Newell did some kind of you know nose signal. Like it was very bizarre. Everyone just kind of got up and left. It was just like Gabe and one other person there. And he's like, come with me. And so he takes me down to the fourth floor of their building that they're in. And he's like, this whole floor is yours. You know, you have unlimited budget, hire whoever you want. This is what I want you to do. You know, Microsoft is constantly threatening to push our store off of Windows. We want to be done with, with them if that happens. You know, I want you to design some kind of gaming system that brings the entire family together. I want grandma, grandpa, all the way down to the grandkids playing games together. Does that sound interesting? And I'm like, Jesus, wow, I, I don't know. And he's like, stay one more day and let's talk about it tomorrow after you sleep on it. And I'm like, I didn't bring any toiletries. I was just gonna fly up for like a few hours. He's like, uh, well, we'll get the, the folks up front, uh, the front desk to help you out. <laughs> so, wow, um, laying the out the red thing, carpet. First thing they're like, you know, hey, let's go to the swag room. And so they're handing me like valve t-shirts and stuff like some valve to valve toothpaste. <laughs> yeah. So they're giving me t-shirts and they're like, okay, we'll drive you out to the store so you can get toiletry and underwear or whatever you need to get. So they drove me around and they put me up, of course, in some luxurious like uh, hotel. And I came back the next day and of course, like they're turning it on really thick. And I was like, oh gosh, how can I not do this? And so I'm like, but I have this other contract. I got to finish. It's probably six months. And they're like, oh, you know, we got to get you. Like, can we just pay them money to like go away? I'm like, you know, when I make a promise, I want to follow through. I'm like, I'll tell you what, I'll work double time, right? I'll work with you guys like three days a week. And then I'll double time it over the weekend with those guys. And, and we'll get this, this done. And that's what I did and bootstrapped their hardware department. It was awesome. Uh, we brought in some of the best um, people. I had this thesis I came up with on how we should run um, the hardware lab. So we needed three types of people. We needed makers that could build things super fast. We needed researchers to go off and find the hard data about you know different gaming techniques we we're gonna do. And then we need product people kind of like myself. And that's why I hired. I, I hired a lot of people like that and super productive. We went off, uh, we spent the first couple of years just researching everything gaming. There was no idea was a bad idea. 
spent gobs and gobs of money. We did things like we put probes on people's heads to read their emotions and we fed that back into the game engine. Love it. We could sh- and we showed that you could improve gameplay. We read people's emotional state with um, cameras pointing at their eyes. We did VR, we did AR. And that's where I got the AR bug because always in my mind, it's like, how can we bring an entire family together to play games? And AR is it. Slip on the glasses, magical world springs out in front of you. The interactions are so simple. Everyone knows how to poke something with a stick or poke something with their finger or swipe something. You don't need to understand a complicated joystick to have a delightful time in AR. And we prototyped that. And the AR experience in the the hardware lab, people would come and hang out for hours at a time playing the dumbest games. Like we, we would have games that were like almost zero gameplay, but it was a social gathering time. People would come and it was like, it was almost like the fidget spinner kind of phenomenon. People just wanted to sit together and fiddle with things in AR, like lead your character around, you know, avoid the zombies. The zombies aren't very smart, so they're never gonna catch you, but maybe you can Pied Piper them over to your buddy and get your buddy surrounded with zombies so he can't get out. Compared to to Pong, going into that kind of immersive environment, I can imagine, especially if it's the first time for people, must be pretty wowing. And it it really stuck with me. I'm like, we are on to something. If people are coming and just hanging out, and this is like the uh, gathering place, you know, for people, we win, right? And so... Valve went through this kind of identity crisis. They're pretty hardcore um, game company. All their games are pretty hardcore. So we are all, we're also doing VR. And so the groundswell was around VR because it kind of fit their DNA a little bit better, even though people tended to play the AR stuff more. And they thought AR was too cutesy. So they didn't want to do it. So they ended up cutting the whole AR team and I ended up going out with it. Um, I went to Gabe Newell, the founder of the company. And... Uh, uh, it's like, I can't believe you're killing. It was, it was funny. It's like, I went to talk to him. I was going to chew him out. Like I was mad. Like you're killing this, killing my baby. Right. And I walk in the door and it was like, um, first it was anger for like a nanosecond. And then it was like me weeping for like <laughs> 10 minutes. And then it was like the, the, probably the smartest thing I ever said is like, you should just sell me this technology. And he's like, okay. So I ended up, I went back to some of my colleagues at Valve and a group of us got together and we formed a company and Which we bought the technology for a hundred dollars. Go Valve, way to, way to support yeah. a startup. That's really cool. Valve is a cool place. It has some good, some pros and cons. Like you can read about it. Like they have a very um, strange company culture where there's no management. And so sometimes it becomes Lord of the flies and, you know, whatever has the biggest groundswell will have an immune response against like other things. And that's what happened to us. There was an immune response because we weren't snapping in line and going with like the rest of the, the um, team. But they've always had like this mantra, like we, we're the good guys, like always, we're going to mess up, always try to do the right thing. And that's something I learned at Valve that sticks with me through my last couple startups. Right. Um, so yeah, we started a company and it was very interesting. VR was taking off like mad. We did this AR thing. We raised a bunch of money. This is the first time I was a founder of a venture backed company, which so many lessons learned. 
um, money was easy to get. We didn't have to be like forged in a fire, like when you have to like really fight for something. So that's lesson one. Sometimes when things come to you too easy, um, it sets you on a course that's um, heading for tragedy. Um, one of the other things I learned was I was too scared to be the CEO of the company. Like I hadn't, I hadn't done um, a venture-backed company. So there's a lot of mechanics of it, like raising money from venture capitalists and um, pitching, you know, uh, press directly. Uh, just so many things about it, and like you know, your ESOP plan that you have to put together for the employees. So I outsourced that. I hired a CEO and a CFO and marketing people, and I handed the keys to my dream to other people. And of course, you know, if they don't have, if they can't absorb it, they just take you, you know, off a cliff. And that's what happens. The company, um, and it ultimately crashed and burned. And it was really tragic. Um, so I'm sitting in this office and all of the celebrity CEOs that our investors brought in constantly replacing CEOs to try to make the company work had exited stage left. And they left me with all the baggage to figure out how to clean up the mess. Like closing down a company is just as complicated as starting a company. Um, so I'm sitting there crying in my beer. I get a call out of the blue from Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. I maybe had met him once at a trade show but he had been tracking our project and thought it was the best thing. And apparently he had been like watching my YouTube channel or something. He was a big fan. Somehow he found my phone number and he called me and he's like, you know, I, I just want to give you a pep talk. Like I've crashed companies as, as much as anybody. Like sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, it's okay. Um, I just want to leave you, and he also said, like, I could see this coming a mile away. You were outsourcing the vision of the company. You can't do that. And he's like, I just want to tell you, you know, if you want this to happen, there's a way. I can't tell you how, just go figure it out. And that was the catalyst that I needed at that really low point in my life. Um, so I started reaching out to my mentors and friends and folks that are savvy around business. Like, you know, I just crashed and burned this $15 million company and Nolan Bushnell was telling me that I outsourced all the vital parts and that I should do it myself. And the folks were like, yeah, you know what? You know, those assets are sitting there. You can just buy those. Like, really? Even when I was kind of part of destroying the company? It's like, yeah. And so I went to all my trusted folks um, in the company. I'm like, we could do this. Like, it's a good product. You all know it's a good product. And my co-founders, they're like, yeah, you've always had the vision. Like, you should be the CEO. Like, we'll do it if you promise that you'll always be the CEO. We'll be there to support you. And so that's what we did. We bought the assets and we bootstrapped the company for six months. And we really put our heads together about what we were going to do right this time and not do wrong again. One of the things that we recognize that we had to do right is we had to go back to the old, who is your audience? What's the message? What's the elevator pitch to your audience that's so understandable that you don't have to teach them anything? And we spent a lot of time like, should it be medical imaging? Should it be education? Should it be games? And of course we're kind of gamers at heart. So we kept gravitating back to that. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Like we can free you from your computer screen or your, your, your television, bring you together. Like multiplayer gaming is going to be 
effing amazing on our system. The thing that you have trouble doing on your computer screen, we make it so easy. So you can have that connection with your friends. And if your friends can't be in the same room with you, we can connect game boards together and have a shared holographic experience. And you're talking through voice chat right on the headset. You can see your hands holographically moving through this you know, magical world in front of you. It's like, oh, that's a great message. And we focus the company instead of what we were doing at my previous startup where we were trying to boil the ocean, be everything for everyone. We're like, no, bringing games to the table. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's been so great. You know, it's great investors understand it, customers understand it, our third-party game developers like get it. You know, there's no confusion with the personnel. Like they know what we're building. Clarity is so helpful. Yeah. You, you now you just announced where you opened something up for people to to build XR experiences on your platform. Is that yeah? So the process, like we bought a bunch of stuff from my previous startup. So we had a lot of the technology built. We needed to refine it because it had too much like junk in it from like not being focused. So we fixed the hardware up and for the last uh, we did a Kickstarter campaign to kind of bootstrap the company and get excitement going. We were the biggest AR project ever on Kickstarter, which was awesome. Partly nice. because of that message. And we did it all with a marketing budget that was so small. We did it out of our pockets. It was amazing. And uh, uh, in the background, we attracted a bunch of third-party developers. So we've been working with them for about a year. So there's a bunch of content that's been in the works. And so we raised um, some money from venture capitalists. And now we're in production in the hardware. So we can build a lot of the hardware um, in China. So now we're um, kind of lifting the, uh, the veil a little bit and being a little bit more vocal and, and letting people know that, um, you know, we're open for business, especially if you're a developer and we want to get a lot of content. So there's this constant drumbeat. You get our headset. If you're not happy with the current lineup of games, there's always going to be something next week. And so the next four to six months is going to be just pushing really hard to get lots of different types of games. And so right now we have some really exciting platforms on our system. We have a platform, which is a a virtual um, D&D platform where you can do all these game scenarios and it's got licensed D&D content. So our, our board, it's not so much holographic with their experience, but it's a, um, a giant monitor on your table where you have maps and you can put your miniatures down and run them across. We have another platform that has thousands of board games that you would know about. And so you can play multiplayer board games around the table or um, you know, virtually. And this we is also- with a pair of glasses? Yeah. And it's cross-platform too. So if your buddies don't have a lot of our contents, so if you don't, your buddies don't have glasses yet, you can still play on your PC or your phone and be part of the excitement Very until cool. you go out and get your own glasses. And then we have tons of other genres. We have puzzle games, we have action games, we have RTSs. We're trying to get a little bit of everything. Um, so if you're a video game player, you're going to love it. If you're a D&D player, you're going to love it. If you're a, a board game player, you're going to love it. And so so it, the the headset is in what early production for devs, and then what you're doing is is connecting relationships with them to to increase the amount of content. What is that about where you're at? 
Yeah, we're making this whole pipeline. Like we don't want like a hundred games day one. That's not helpful if like, I mean, it's helpful, but it- You need be to have the attention. It, yeah, you want to kind of have that drum beat because we're yeah. not selling a piece of plastic with a bunch of sensors and really awesome uh, displays in it. Like I could go on and on about the technical aspects of our glasses. We crush everybody um, that's in the AR space as far as like tabletop experiences because we have this clever optical trick that I came up with. But um, what we're really selling is gaming experiences to people. And so we live and die by how many games we can get on the system. Like if I could, I tell people all the time, like if I could sprinkle magic fairy dust on the table and holograms pop out of it, that's what we're going to sell. Like we're not going to do glasses. Like I'm not, I don't care about the glasses. I care about like the delighting the end user. And then of course, in the business, we have bigger aspirations. We truly believe in the next decade or so, this is going to become more and more prevalent. Like you can tell, like all the big players are working in this space. Like you've got Microsoft doing HoloLens, you've got Facebook doing some like audio AR glasses and there's rumors Apple's doing some things. Snap just dropped their developer yeah, glasses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's like, we are like, if we look at where we are today in evolution, we're kind of like at the Apple II, right? Okay. Kind of clunky. Uh, it can do a couple things really well. It could play some video games really well, but it's not like you can't pull an Apple II out of your pocket and use it like you can your smartphone phone. It took two decades to put a supercomputer in your pocket. And AR is the same thing. Like the snap glasses are really cool, but they're a really tiny image and they only run for like 20 minutes. They're not immersive like our system and things like that, but they serve a different purpose. And there's like all these different avenues into this augmented reality space, like Snapchat. It's gonna be really cool. You'll be able to walk down the street and maybe like, you know, tag a street sign with some words or something for your buddy to see or you know record a video from it and live stream it and do things I like, like the that. word that you used earlier it, augmented reality a good word for that is it's additive it adds yeah. to the physical experience that we're already having yeah you know that's again like that uh warhammer experience i had it's like sometimes when you have a hammer you just try to hammer everything and sometimes simple solutions are better like the uh, fantasy grounds that does D, D campaigns like there's no need to have fancy 3d graphics the players just want like a great map and story that they can use and they just use our glasses to put the miniatures down you have a beautiful map to uh, play on instead of you know doing tiles and doing other things like you can get in and out of the game faster or you could play with friends over the internet that's really cool. So you can save your game, right? You that's like, why don't we play more board games? Like, oh, it takes forever to set up and tear down. And my friends have to leave early and we didn't finish the game. Like one of the things that we solve is like, hey, I want to play Settlers of Catan. Hey, jump on your tilt five headset and uh, let's play. Oh, I got to go. Let's just hit save and come back to it tomorrow. So we're solving some real world problems in a couple of these gaming spaces or Again, back like televisions, like my living room, I like to play multiplayer games. So I have two big TVs, two PlayStations, two Xboxes, two Switches. And that only lets me play with two people at a time. And it's a broken experience. Like if I'm playing a game where I need private information and I don't want my buddy to see me like, you know, setting up my military men on my, in my base, well, it doesn't work. But in our system, 
we can come around the table and have any number of people like playing some kind of strategy game and you know it's it solves this problem of n number of users and privacy between each of the users so it becomes you know up to the game developer to choose like what's shared between users and what's hidden from other users that's really cool. And so are you, you're, you're still calling developers in for the platform. Are you, yeah, yeah. are, are you retailing to people who are early adopters in the augmented reality space? Yeah, right now, um, our Kickstarter units go out very soon. So this summer, the Kickstarter units go out. Awesome. You know. Looking forward to that announcement. That'll be fun. And uh, we've been pre-selling. So on our website, you can go and, you know, get a pre-sale and we've been doing tons and tons of pre-sales so we have to catch up on that like we're just kind of getting our footing and like manufacturing these fast enough so my goal is by winter time like someone could go to our website click buy and then it could ship out like the next day awesome um, if all goes well that's really cool so the, but i the, forgot about one oh, of the you you brought it, it up before we even uh 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 started the call or the podcast so I had an opportunity. It's been a lifelong dream for me. So crashed and burned, and this is kind of relevant to uh, um, what I got to do, crash and burning. Uh, startup crashes and burns. I have some time on my hands. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do. We're spending like six months just trying to get things in line so we can go again. And so I need to get some money to help bootstrap the company. And a buddy of mine calls me up. He's like, I've got a small rocket company called Astra at Alameda. And the person working on our flight computer has left and it doesn't work. You know, you're the person that can solve this problem for us. And we're trying to make a low earth orbit rocket. And kind of like the valve guys, I'm like, oh, I'm not really interested. I'm trying to bootstrap the company, but man, maybe the money would be helpful so I can like not go bankrupt again. <laughs> and, uh, so I go up to Alameda and I walk in this old naval base building on this naval base. And here's this rocket, this giant rocket laying horizontally in this, you know, building. I'm like, holy cow, this is cool. This is like things I've always dreamed about. So they schmooze me a bunch and I'm like, oh gosh, darn it. All right. As soon as my startup's going, I'm out of here, but I'll get you, you know, on kind of steady ground. And so as, as well as bootstrapping the company, I build a navigation system and telemetry system for a low earth orbit rocket, which was hard and frustrating at times, but we got it, got it done. And it was so cool being like part of that whole thing, watching the first two rockets that went up, went up and poof, blew up, of course, because rockets are really hard, yeah. unplanned, uh, what do they call it? Unplanned dismantling or something. <laughs> Uh, I have to say it wasn't my flight computers that caused it to blow up. It was other like things like fuel leaks and things like that. But the third time's a charm. They made it up into orbit. And so I'm Amazing. super proud that I got to work on something like that. Yeah, you, you definitely have a rich history. And I'll never do it again. Like that's, that's one of those things that uh, was kind of a dream job, but I can't imagine doing that forever because it's so, so much bu bureaucracy in hurtling tons of kerosene and liquid oxygen up into the air and not crashing down in the wrong place. But it was a good season. Yeah. That's awesome. So I hope them, they still bug me every once in a while. Hey, come back. I'm like, 
sorry. I mean, things are going so well at till five. There's no way you're going to get me back even to, to help out part-time, but I, I love them. I hope they uh, take on the big boys. So people connect with you on the Tilt 5 website or engage the brand, get a headset for developers. They can go sign up there as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a developer program uh, and there's some money available for um, titles that we particularly want on the system. Um, There's also a loaner program. You know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't quite fit into what we're looking for, like, you know, that's okay. We can probably set you up with some loaner systems or if it's really far out there, we can help in other ways. But like we have a lot of inbound that's non-gaming too, but um, we've made this commitment to stay really focused on gaming for the first release. And so we're supporting other vertical markets, but at a lesser degree. Absolutely. Jerry, this was cool. I really (laughs) appreciate you taking the time to walk through your story in like all the cool things. But I think it was also you overcoming the obstacles and in being open about the learning experiences that got you to where you're at today. That is, is going to be really powerful for people. One last funny story along those lines. So, you know, I, uh, uh, occasionally give this talk and, um, it's good that I've done some exciting things like rockets that kind of spice it up and make it more exciting for me to share. Right. But at one point I decided like, I'm really going to mix this up when I, I do the talk, I'm not going to talk about the highlights so much. I'm going to talk about like the times that I fell on my face and not, not emphasize like overcome. I talked about overcoming, but sometimes when I tell the story, it sounds like I'm just like amazing. And I just like did everything perfect along the way. And so I spent like a lot of time dwelling on like, well, this went really wrong and yada, yada, yada. And uh, the promoter at the event came up to me afterwards. He was a little flustered. He's like, that's not what I expected. It's like, oh, sorry. So now I try to strike a balance between like the kind of harsh realities of like trying to like blaze your own path and be an entrepreneur and inventor and do things differently and, and highlight the, the things that when it really works out, it works out really well. Do you? Yeah. yeah. It's been yeah. super fun. Thanks. Yeah. I, I hope uh, my rambly stories uh... were great. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks.